Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm the director of the Robert A. Lee Center for Constitutional Studies. Uh, and here at Cato, we pride ourselves on being uh, against executive overreach from before it was cool. Uh, today, uh, we're talking about the National Emergencies Act and executive power over emergencies in general. In recent years, libertarians and progressives have found common cause in their concern that the growth of executive power is, goes beyond constitutional limits. Our Constitution actually gives the President few uh, explicit emergency powers, but Presidents have invoked national emergencies uh, from the beginning of our Republic in different ways. After Watergate, Congress created a framework for regulating this authority. It didn't give the power, as the panel will get into. It created a framework to try to regulate it. Uh, the 1976 National Emergencies Act. And I bet you didn't know that since that act, uh, we've had 59 uh, national emergencies declared, 32 of which, including the, the wall emergency, are still ongoing. We are still, in fact, in a state of emergency from the 1979 Iran hostage taking and also from the 2006 Belarusian presidential election fraud. So I uh, hope that doesn't alarm you too much. Uh, with President Trump's decision to circumvent Congress and declare a national emergency to construct a wall on the southern border, the propriety of the National Emergencies Act and broader separation of powers issues can no longer be avoided. Here to uh, discuss all those issues will be our wonderful panel. Uh, but before we get to them, uh, let me introduce to you Carolyn Fredrickson, who's the president of the American Constitution Society, with whom I'm delighted to be co-hosting this event. Thanks so much, Ilya, and it is uh, really a pleasure for us at ACS to be uh, partnering with Cato on this very important event. Um, there are other things going on in Washington besides the Mueller report. Um, so I'm glad you're all here um, to discuss uh, another incredibly important topic. So ACS, just for those of you who may not know us, we were founded in 2001, and we are a national network of lawyers, law students, judges, and policymakers who believe in the values of the Constitution of We the People. And we work for positive change by shaping debate on vitally important legal and constitutional issues, such as the ones we will discuss today. Um, and as Zelia said, today's conversation on the 1976 National Emergencies Act could not be more timely. Following the longest government shutdown in US history, President Trump, entered uncharted legal and constitutional territory when he bypassed Congress to declare a national emergency to build a wall on the southern border. Originally intended to cabin executive power following the Watergate scandal, the National Emergencies Act includes a provision wherein Congress can terminate the president's emergency declaration. And earlier this month, Congress did just that with bipartisan majorities in both House and Senate. And now we have front row seats, and maybe even tomorrow, to watch how the veto and the potential congressional override play out. But regardless of how these legislative machinations end, and irrespective of what comes in the courts, one thing is true. The president's declaration has helped to unite civil rights advocates and civil libertarians to warn not only of legal and constitutional concerns, but also to ask whether the National Emergencies Act has become part of the problem rather than part of the solution. So we are particularly grateful to Cato, our co-host uh, and sponsor for today's event, 
for their leadership and the mutual recognition that this issue requires us to work along lines of difference to find common ground. And today's panelists do have different ideological orientations, but they're united in their concern over an, an overly expansive use of executive power and, and the concern that we need to rethink the legislative framework moving forward. So to get the conversation started today, I'm very pleased to introduce Spencer Boyer. He's the director of the Washington office of the Brennan Center. And prior to joining Brennan, Spencer served in senior roles in the Obama administration, including at the National Intelligence Council and the State Department, where he focused on issues at the intersection of national security and civil liberties. Spencer will get us started by sharing the Brennan Center's recent research on emergency powers. So, Spencer. Well, thank you so much, uh, Caroline, for that introduction. And on behalf of the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University School of Law, thank you for including me in this important and very timely discussion on presidential emergency powers. Uh, as many of you know, the Brennan Center has really been at the forefront of the national debate on the use of emergency powers over the past several months. While a feature article in The Atlantic by the Brennan Center's Liberty and National Security Program co-director, Liza Goitin, got many people talking about this topic over the winter, uh, this piece followed two years of intensive research on the topic by the Brennan Center. In December, we published the results of that research, uh, which you can find on our website, along with recommendations for reform. In January, we also hosted a day-long symposium along with the R Street Institute on various aspects of emergency power. The goal was to help start a conversation about whether the legal framework for emergency powers in the US strikes the right balance between giving the president needed authorities on the one hand, but also safeguarding democracy and essential liberties on the other. Uh, little did we know how quickly that conversation would catch fire, thanks to a bit of additional kindling by the president. Uh, as you know, and was, uh, as was touched upon by, by Caroline, President Trump spent most of January socializing the idea of declaring a national emergency to get around a budget stalemate with Congress. On February 15th, after a budget deal had been reached in Congress that gave him roughly $1.4 billion for border security, he made good on his threats. In declaring a national emergency to free up funding for a wall on our southern border. He invoked emergency power 10 USC 2808, which permits moving funding between military construction projects under certain circumstances. He also announced his intention to transfer funding from other non-emergency sources. The move prompted immediate criticism and pushback on both sides of the aisle, culminating in an historic vote to terminate the emergency, which the Brennan Center and many other groups represented in this room weighed in on with congressional offices and committees. On February 26th, following procedures set forth in the National Emergencies Act, the House of Representatives passed a bipartisan resolution to terminate the state of emergency by a vote of 245 to 182, with 13 Republicans joining Democrats. A couple of weeks ago, the Senate followed suit, agreeing to terminate the emergency by a vote of 59 to 41, with 12 Republicans joining their Democratic colleagues. President Trump vetoed the resolution the next day, the first veto of his presidency. And while the veto was disappointing, if not surprising, 
to many, including uh, those in my organization, the passage of the re resolution, uh, I believe, was an, a remarkable act of dissent. In the more than 40 years following the passage of the National Emergencies Act, or NEA as it's called, presidents have declared emergencies uh, approximately 60 times and renewed emergency declarations regularly. Congress has never voted to terminate a state of emergency until now. Under the original terms of the National Emergencies Act, this vote alone would have been sufficient to override the declaration. However, the Supreme Court uh, decision of INS v. Chadha effectively mooted that provision by finding legislative vetoes unconstitutional. And for this reason, uh, in order to terminate an emergency, Congress must now attempt to find a very difficult to get veto-proof majority. Uh, as Caroline mentioned, uh, this vote is due in, uh, in the House tomorrow, but nobody is holding their breath. And of course, the president may still be checked by the judicial branch. And at least six lawsuits are uh, baking their way through federal courts in California, Texas, and the District of Columbia as we speak, uh, challenging the border declaration as an unprecedented abuse of emergency power. Uh, but this declaration uh, is only the tip of the iceberg, and we cannot afford complacency. The Brennan Center, along with many other groups, have been pushing Congress to act now to reform the NEA uh, and restore the balance of power. And while the devil is in the details, as it always is, we're delighted to note that there have already been bills produced in both houses of Congress to reform the NEA with bipartisan support for such reforms. As the Brennan Center's Liza Goitin outlined in her testimony, uh, at a recent hearing before a House Judiciary Committee uh, subcommittee uh, regarding the NEA, uh, we've proposed a set of common sense changes. Uh, among our proposals, uh, first, Congress should specify that a president can only declare a national emergency in the event of a significant change in factual circumstances that poses an imminent threat to public health, public safety, or other important national interests. Second, any emergency declared by the president should automatically terminate after 30 days unless Congress votes to continue it. Third, no state of emergency should last longer than five years. And finally, Congress should provide that powers exercised under the declared emergency must be limited to those that would actually address that emergency. These changes would preserve the flexibility the president needs to act in times of true crisis while also building in safeguards against abuse, finally fulfilling the original goal of the NEA. The current system lacks basic checks and balances and lends itself to near permanent national emergencies. Our research has found that the average emergency declaration lasts 9.6 years and opens up uh, over 120 statutory powers. And the fact that these powers have not been more broadly abused by presidents over the years, I think uh, shows a remarkable amount of restraint by past presidents and no uh, small amount of luck. Uh, but as the last few months have shown, we can no longer rely on restraint and luck to protect our constitutional balance of powers. And we truly believe that Congress must promptly reform the National Emergencies Act to prevent future abuses. Uh, so I'll end there. Thanks again, uh, Cato, uh, American Constitution Society, uh, and all of you for attending today uh, for this really, I think, important discussion. And I look forward to hearing it. Thanks. Thank you all for being here. My name is Gene Healy. I'm a vice president at Cato, and I'll be moderating today's panel discussion. The cliche about the modern legislative process is the president proposes, Congress disposes. And that used to be where the sentence ended. 
Uh, president Trump now proposes to add uh, a codicil unless the president declares a national emergency, in which case he disposes. It's not quite what we children of the 70s learned in Schoolhouse Rock. Uh, so among the questions we'll be exploring on our panel are just how unprecedented is that move? Uh, will this emergency powers gambit survive legal challenge in the courts? If it does, can we expect more uh, rule by decree in future budget battles? And then beyond the immediate issue of the border wall, uh, how big is the problem of emergency powers delegated to the president in general? And what, if anything, can be done about it? Uh, we have a ter terrific lineup for you featuring three accomplished scholars specializing in the intersection between separation of powers and the rule of law. So what I'm going to do is briefly introduce all three and then get out of their way. Uh, first, we'll hear from Deborah Perlstein. Uh, Deborah is professor of law and co-director of the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy at Cardoza School of Law, Yeshiva University in New York, a leading voice on law and counterterrorism. She has repeatedly testified before Congress on topics ranging from presidential war powers to military commissions and detainee treatment. And among other notable achievements, uh, as founding director of the Law and Security Program at Human Rights First, she served on the first team of independent military commission advisors to visit the U.S. naval base at Guantanamo Bay in 2004. Uh, her work on national security and the separation of powers has appeared widely in law journals and the popular press. Following Deborah will be Ilya Soman, who's professor of law at George Mason University and a Cato adjunct scholar. Uh, you can imagine how confusing it gets on an email chain trying to iron out the details for an event featuring two Ilyas, both constitutional lawyers, both with Cato affiliations, both with the same last initial. Get sidetracked into debates about which one of them gets to be called Ilya Prime. <laughs> a few years back, they both, it's a true story, they both showed up at the same Federalist Society event because one of the organizers accidentally also forwarded the invitation to subprime Ilya. <laughs> they had to speak their, split their speaking time, and even worse, their honorarium. It's not an issue today since we're not paying them. Uh, for those of you who want to delve deeper into this issue of mistaken identity, last year on the popular Volok Conspiracy blog hosted by Reason Magazine, Ilya wrote a 1,500-word blog post entitled Ilya Confusion. A Guide for the, for the Perplexed. <laughs> In any event, Ilya Soman's research focuses on constitutional law, property law, and the study of political participation and its in, implications for constitutional democracy. He is the author of Democracy and Political Ignorance, Why Smaller Government is Smarter, and The Grasping Hand, Kilo versus City of New London, and the Limits of Eminent Domain. And finally, rounding out the uh, opening remarks, uh, Adam White is Assistant Professor of Law and Executive Dire Director of the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. Uh, Adam's a member of the Administrative Conference of the United States. He serves on the leadership councils for the administrative law sections of both the American Bar Association and the Federal Society, and he is also a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. So please welcome Deborah Pearlstein.
Thank you to Jean and the Cato Institute and to Caroline and Deborah Perlin at ACS. Um, I'm delighted to be here and grateful for all of you for uh, coming out on a day when it's conceivable you could be reading other news. Um, I actually think this is an incredibly important uh, issue. Um, and I want to begin, uh, actually, I should begin by correcting one brief thing. And just for the record, in the introduction, I was on the first team of independent human rights monitors to go down to Guantanamo Bay back in 2014 when they began military commission operations. I was on the human rights uh, uh, service when I was a human rights lawyer back a million years ago, um, uh, not in the military uh, service itself, I should say. Um, on the topic of emergencies, or I should say our present emergency, let me begin by saying before my remarks, I think, in my view, the particular invocation of the Emergency Act that we're talking about today, the one that um, the president invoked in February, is a pretextual invocation of the act. I do not believe there is an emergency. I do not believe the national security believes there uh, is an emergency. I don't believe the current Department of Defense believes there is an emergency. Um, I find it a deeply problematic use of the power. But I think there's a lot of misconceptions about why and what's problematic about it as a matter of law. So um, in these brief remarks, I want to uh, step back and try to make really three uh, points. First, the primary legal problem with the president's recent invocation of the National Emergency Act is a statutory problem, not a constitutional problem. And I'll talk about that a great deal more in just a minute. The second point I want to make is that the primary problem with the NEA is not a presidential power problem. It's a congressional delegation problem. It's a problem not of the president seizing power necessarily, um, but of Congress giving it away. And three, because I really am determined to end on a, a note of hope, um, I think it's entirely possible that Congress might actually take steps to fix this problem. Um, and that's an exciting prospect that one can't always say in good faith, uh, but I hope we can talk about that and you can all tell me why I should have no hope um, uh, here. So let me start with backing up and delving just a little bit into the legal weeds about what the president did in February just recently and whether or not uh, one can make a plausible, indeed successful, certainly plausible, but more importantly successful legal claim that what he did violates the Constitution or the laws of the United States. Notwithstanding the rhetoric, I think, on both sides of the aisle on the Hill and the raft of lawsuits uh, that were mentioned challenging uh, the Trump's invocation of the emergency power as a violation of the Constitution, the most apparent legal problems, uh, if any, in, in the conduct here surround compliance with the relevant statutes, not the Constitution. The NEA, as we've just heard, gives the president an enormous amount of power. Congress quite deliberately did this, and it's still on the books. Um, and there is no legal argument, in my judgment, against its application here that is, in the parlance of DC, a slam dunk. That is to say, I think there are a bunch of very good arguments that it doesn't apply here and can't be understood to comply here, but none of these arguments is a sort of surefire winner. And let me just um, give you a couple of reasons why I, I think that. So backing up to February, right, the president um, issued a declaration and an accompanying fact sheet saying, here's what I'm doing. 
And the fact sheet tells us that he's going to access something on the order of six or seven billion dollars, a bit more, um, for constructing a wall on the southern border. Um, not quite half of that money comes from existing statutory authorizations that have nothing to do with the National Emergency Act at all. Um, requires no emergency declaration to access. It remains to this day, as far as I can tell, entirely unclear where exactly from which statutory pots, existing statutory pots of money, the president um, is proposing to get that money. Depending on what he does, various statutory questions of legality may be presented, um, but we can't answer the legality question yet until we know more specifically about what the president proposes to do. I'll come back to that in just a second. The remaining three point something billion dollars does require the invocation of the National Emergency Act. And the National Emergency Act in relevant part, right, it's just a key that unlocks other statutory powers, other sta uh, powers that Congress has authorized. And the act says in relevant part with respect to acts of Congress authorizing the exercise during the period of a national emergency of any special or extraordinary power, the president is authorized to declare such national emergency period, okay? So why is this legally complicated or problematically uh, not clearly uh, illegal? So number one, as a matter of suing, right, in the, the current cases that are pending before the courts, the fact sheet that the president issued along with the emergency declaration says that the president won't touch the NEA relevant funds, the relatively half the pot, the pot that's being challenged legally most directly, um, until he's expended the other funds that he hasn't yet identified first. Right, so first we're going to spend the money, the three billion something that we haven't yet said where it's gonna come from, and only once we've done that will we begin to tap into the NEA relevant funds. If you're suing, this raises an enormous problem of what lawyers would call ripeness under Article Three. right? How can you identify what the harm is, much less who might have standing to sue about it, um, if in fact we don't even know yet when, where, which uh, statutory authorities uh, the president plans to invoke. That's one particular hurdle the lawsuits are currently facing. Um, equally, as I mentioned in reading the statutory text, the NEA grants the president, it appears, right, total discretion to identify an emergency. It doesn't modify the president's discretion to just declare a national emergency in any way. There are a variety of what a lawyer would call interpretive canons, right? Canons of statutory interpretation, rules of statutory interpretation that courts use if they conclude the meaning of a statute is clear. So what does it mean in some respect, national emergency within the terms of the statute? There are a variety of rules that courts employ to try to help inform their judgment of what that means. One, and I imagine we might talk more about it, is the so-called non-delegation canon. This is the idea that Congress, because of the separation of powers, can't simply give all its power away to the other branch, right? Congress couldn't simply fully delegate, say, the budget-making power, else we would no longer have separation of powers, right? So the court has long said, look, if there's any question about the meaning of a statute, let's prefer the meaning that does not create an excessive delegation problem, right? That canon is available to the courts here, but in fact, the Supreme Court hasn't actually held an act violates the so-called non-delegation doctrine since 1935. Um, 
And more problematically, the court in the national security context, not always, and in particular, not especially in the years after 9-11, but regularly defers to executive judgments on what counts as a national security emergency. And we saw this acutely in the Trump versus Hawaii case just recently, in which the Supreme Court upheld the president's third iteration of the travel ban, um, in part on the grounds that uh, the president had cited prima facie national security arguments for why he needed to do it. The best, therefore, legal challenge that the current invocation is facing um, is the underlying statutory authority that the president's trying to invoke. So he declares an emergency, and the particular power he's trying to assert is the statute 10 U.S.C. 2808. to to build the wall. And the statute he wants to rely on says, in the event of a declaration of emergency um, that requires the use of the armed forces, the Secretary of Defense may authorize the secretaries of the military departments to undertake military construction projects that are necessary to support such use of the armed forces. Okay. There's a lot of language in there uh, that lawyers can and should, and I anticipate will, years down the road when these issues become ripe, because the president begins to tap into this money, um, that, uh, that give lawyers room to argue this is not a permissible invocation of this statute, right? The words require and necessary imply some sort of objective determination that a court could um, conclude has not been made. Um, and the statute includes a definition of military construction within its terms that it is not at all clear um, is met by the construction of a wall, certainly not a wall um, on private land. Um, so there are plenty of, I think, rich statutory arguments to be made there. I'm happy to talk about them in great deal more detail. Um, but the point is, the best argument here is a statutory argument, and we're not going to get there for some period of time yet, depending on how quickly the president decides he wants to move. So given where I started, right, that this is a manifestly pretextual use of the emergency authority that uh, the president is trying to exercise, um, contrary to Congress's, I think, sort of by any objective terms, disinterest in funding the wall that the president would like to build. Why is this argument not a slam dunk? Why is this a complicated, long story for why um, this may or may not be lawful? And that leads me to the problem with the existing National uh, Emergency Act. And I'll, I think there are a bunch of problems, but let me just highlight uh, two for present purposes. Now, some might call the first one an excessive delegation uh, problem. Um, some might call it shirking. Political scientists, I have, think, have the best uh, name for the problem. They call it the problem of redundancy problem. And the problem is this. You have multi- Thank you. <laughs> the problem is this, right? Um, you have multiple actors all involved in decision making. Each one knows the other one is involved. And so each has an incentive to let the other one take the real burden of decision and ha- hold the real burden of accountability, right? Congress says, well, we're going to authorize this power, but we don't have to take special care in how we craft this statute, because really the president is going to, in good faith, exercise the determination about how it should be exercised. He'll take care of it. Equally, the president can say, well, Congress gave me this authority. They must have assumed that I would exercise it in good faith. Therefore, I'm not going to worry too much about right, whether or not it is, I can blame Congress for giving me the authority in the first place. 
Both political branches say, look, if we really were too far off the deep end here, the courts would step in and check us. And yet, for reasons I just mentioned, the courts have developed a variety of doctrines in this area that tend to suggest they would defer to the judgment of the political branches. And the problem is no one branch actually can be held individually accountable for what happens when the president invokes emergency authority. The last problem is the Chata problem. And since I'm running out of time, um, I'll say briefly uh, the following. As was mentioned before, in 1983, the Supreme Court decided that when Congress engages in anything like lawmaking, right, it needs to do it the way the Constitution said, pass it by both houses of Congress and get the president to sign it. The bill as originally drafted back in 1976 when it was meant to constrain executive authority said Congress could override the president's veto with concurrent resolution. That is, without getting the president to sign it bypassing the presidential veto that we've just seen invoked. Since INS versus Chadha in 1983, Congress went back and amended the NEA to make it consistent with that decision. Now the override does have to pass back through the president, as we've seen, meaning that in effect, the act now in the post-Chadha universe creates, sort of flips the separation of powers on its head. Right? Um, in effect, it takes a supermajority of Congress to disapprove any presidential invocation of emergency. This is not how uh, it was originally intended to work. I don't think the act should be understood to stand in this, uh, given this change. Um, but for now, it is where it is on the books. Last very brief point. Why do I have hope? Um, well, I think it's possible that we are living in an era, in part with the current president to thank for it, in which Congress is concluding that it might actually have some important role as a co-equal branch um, in, in our government, um, particularly on questions of national security. Not only did it just vote, I think very significantly, to overturn for the first time in history the president's declaration of an emergency under this act since 1976, it, in the last few months, also for the first time since the War Powers Act was passed in 1973, voted to end US military assistance under the War Powers uh, Act in, uh, for Saudi operations in Yemen. The Senate recently fell just a few votes short with 11 Republicans voting uh, to override the administration's decisions about the imposition of sanctions or the withdrawal of sanctions on certain Russian individuals. The House had hearings two weeks back on whether or not it should pass preemptive legislation to cabin the president's ability to send troops into Colombia and or Venezuela surrounding the current crisis. And of course, we saw the House vote quite recently, 400 20 to nothing uh, to demand the disclosure of the Mueller report. I knew I'd get it in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> the point is this, right? We have an interesting president, and he's made for interesting times in these long-standing separation of powers debates. Um, now strikes me as a remarkably fortuitous moment to pursue amending the NEA. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to start by thanking Cato and ACS for organizing this event and all of you for coming. Sad we have been battling a cold over the last couple of days, but I'm hopeful that I'll have just enough voice to get through this event uh, without declaring another emergency and having to stand down. So I'll uh, do my best to do that. Uh, so I'm going to start by talking a little bit about the current national emergency declaration uh, by the president. And I'll explain why, although it certainly is not a slam dunk, I think this goes beyond what is permissible even under the fairly broad existing 
framework, uh, but I also think there are significant problems with the framework itself, uh, and I'll end by discussing a few possible reforms. Uh, so in February, the president declared a national emergency for the purpose of getting money allocated for his border wall that Congress had refused to give him. Uh, Deborah already gave you the wording of the statute, which says that during a period of a national emergency, the president may declare that emergency and then tap those uh, emergency powers. The question uh, that should be raised, the first question is, is an emergency anything the president says it is? Does his declaring it make it so? Or is he only allowed to declare it in a situation which counts as a sudden crisis, uh, in an emergency in ordinary language, uh, in the way that we would normally use the word? And I think the second interpretation is better uh, for a couple reasons. One is that, in general, the Supreme Court has said, quite rightly, that most of the time we should interpret laws in a way in accordance with their ordinary meaning. And the ordinary meaning of an emergency is not whatever I say it is, or any problem that might arise, or any disagreement that the president might have with Congress about funding. It is rather a sudden crisis, perhaps even a sudden crisis that requires measures that cannot go through the ordinary legislative process. So just under ordinary meaning, that's the better interpretation. Uh, in addition, if you go the other way and you just say that the president can declare an emergency anytime he wants for any reason, then you raise a serious constitutional problem in that although the Supreme Court has been very permissive in letting Congress delegate power to the executive, they've said that there is a limit and that limit has, is that there has to be an intelligible principle for when the power might be used. What is it that counts as an intelligible principle? Not always easy to say, but at the very least, it's not an intelligible principle if the uh, standard is just whenever I feel like doing it or whenever the president wants to do it. That's not an intelligible principle, I think, even under the uh, permissive approach the Supreme Court has taken to these matters. Uh, and the court has also said that where possible, we should interpret federal laws to avoid constitutional problems. Here, the best way to avoid it is to require it to be a, uh, a situation that's a sudden crisis, not just any problem that might arise in any situation. And just briefly, what is going on at the border is not a sudden crisis. Uh, undocumented immigration, even if you consider that to be a problem, uh, is actually at relatively low levels by historical standards. The other issue the president has raised is drug smuggling. Uh, most drug smuggling, some 80%, actually goes through ports of entry and therefore would not be affected by a wall. Uh, so even if there is a crisis there, it has no relationship to the proposed remedy. Finally, if there really were a crisis, it's hard to understand how a wall could possibly be a remedy for it, given that a wall would take several years to build, even aside from the legal challenges to it. Uh, and therefore, it's a little bit like saying, we have a fire going, we gotta really stop it quickly. What's the remedy? We gotta build a new fire station uh, so that we can stop the fire more effectively. Clearly, even if it's a really wonderful, beautiful, excellent new fire station, it's not gonna put out this particular fire. Uh, and therefore, there's a very obvious mismatch between uh, the claim that there's an emergency and the claim that a wall is the solution for the problem. 
Secondly, even if you assume that he can declare an emergency, as Deborah pointed out, uh, it is uh, unlikely that uh, Section 2808 can actually be used to transfer money to build a wall because Section 2808 can only be invoked in situations, in emergencies that require the use of the military. Uh, and there actually is longstanding federal law barring the use of the military for most domestic law enforcement purposes. That includes immigration enforcement. It also includes drug enforcement. So I think this statute is actually, unlike the National Emergencies Act, initial provision, uh, this statute is actually relatively clear. Uh, and it seems to exclude the uh, sort of thing that uh, Trump is trying to do. Finally, there's an additional issue, uh, which is that in order to get much of the property uh, that he would need to build the wall, Trump will need to use eminent domain to condemn private property, maybe even with respect to thousands of different properties. And eminent domain requires specific uh, statutory authorization. I do not think that authorization is present here. I can go into the issues in more detail and questions if people are interested. This is actually somewhat complicated, but I don't think the uh, authorization is quite there. That said, it isn't a slam dunk, particularly on that first issue of whether it's an emergency or not. Uh, and for that reason, among others, whichever way this litigation goes, uh, I think broader reforms are desirable. In particular, uh, one important reform is that it's important that the emergency no longer be indefinite, uh, that it should automatically terminate within a relatively short period of time unless Congress affirmatively endorses it. The Brennan Center recommends that in their list of reforms. A bill to do this actually was recently proposed by Republican Senator Mike Lee. Uh, he and his co-sponsors shade the emergency should end within 30 days unless uh, Congress affirmatively endorses it. You can argue about the particular time frame, but something like that I think is desirable. Uh, second, some uh, of the powers on the list of those that could be triggered uh, are ones that should just be abolished entirely, even if they do have uh, a congressional extension. Uh, I can't go through a full list, but one example is the power to test chemical and biological weapons on unwilling test subjects. That seems like a power that the government shouldn't have, to my mind at least. Another example is the so-called kill switch, kill switch I'm sorry, uh, for shutting down electronic media, including possibly the internet. Uh, that's also a dangerous power that we probably shouldn't leave lying around. Uh, and there are other examples as well. Finally, uh, a statutory vision would be good if it made clear that an emergency must be a sudden crisis, and also that in reviewing whether there really is an emergency or not, uh, the judiciary should not be deferential to the president. When you're invoking extraordinary powers as opposed to ordinary ones, there's a good case for the judges to hold the president's feet to the hold the president's feet to the fire as opposed to just taking his word for it. As you can see, I'm beginning to lose my voice, uh, but I'm near the end of my presentation anyway, so I will stop and I look forward to the rest of the discussion. Thank you. You know, we made a few jokes, sort of uh, inevitable jokes at the outset of today's event, of the juxtaposition of today's discussion with last night's and this weekend's news about the Mueller report. Um, I actually think, and part of the point of my remarks here is that you can't really understand those two developments in isolation from one another. 
I think our understanding of the investigation into President Trump uh, is a reflection of our understanding of the powers of the presidency. And by the same token, I think our, our analysis of the powers of the presidency necessarily turns on the characters of, of, of the president. And that'll be the point of my remarks. Before I get into that, though, I do want to thank the Cato Institute and, and the American Constitution Society for hosting today's event and inviting me to speak. I have to say, at an event um, with the Cato Institute, the ACS and the Brennan Center, uh, a Burkean conservative like me or somebody who tries to be a Burkean conservative, uh, feels like a discreet and insular minority. Uh, so I'm very grateful. That's the kind of joke you don't only make among constitutional lawyers. Um, but I'm very grateful to be here. Um, now back to my main point. On this debate about the president's emergency powers and the powers that Congress has given to presidents and the ways in which the, this, this president has recently attempted to exercise these powers, I worry that we're going to draw, draw the wrong lesson from all of this. Uh, I worry that we'll conclude that presidents must not have emergency powers or that it's, that it's good or even possible to really clearly define emergency powers in advance. Um, I don't think that's possible. I think presidents must have emergency powers, and I think presidents inevitably will have emergency powers, both to some extent under statutes and to some extent under the Constitution. I think that the recent debates, uh, what they do do is they shed new light on the much older lesson about how we select presidents and what qualities go into the way we pick presidents and how we judge the performance of presidents. Now, on this first point about uh, executive power in our constitutional system, our Constitution presumes and necessarily relies upon executive power, and not just uh, sort of the slow execution of laws, but as Hamilton famously wrote in Federalist 70, um, our Constitution presumes an energetic executive. And if you'll just bear with me with, with as I quote uh, the famous lines from that, and if you can't quote the Federalist Papers of the Cato Institute, where can you quote them? Um, Hamilton in, in Federalist 70, he reminds us that, quote, energy in the executive is a leading character in the definition of good government. It is essential to the protection of the community against foreign attacks. It is not less essential to the steady administration of laws. And just pause there and point out again, energy in the executive, not just in foreign policy, but also in the study of administration of laws. And he continues, it's necessary, quote, to the protection of property against those irregular and high-handed combinations which sometimes interrupt the ordinary course of justice, and also uh, to the security of liberty against the enterprises and assaults of ambition, of faction, and of anarchy. And just in those last lines where Hamilton is warning that energy in the executive is needed for those interruptions of the ordinary course of justice, or those, those assaults which can come either from within government or outside of government of ambition, of faction, and of anarchy. That's why we need, an, we need an energetic executive. And Hamilton then goes on a few lines later to say, quote, a feeble executive implies a feeble execution of the government. A feeble execution is but another phrase for bad execution. And a government ill-executed, whatever it may be in theory, is in practice a bad government. So we're going to judge our constitutional system by the administration that it produces, especially, or at least in no small part, in terms of the execution of laws and the steady administration of laws and justice at those moments in which the ordinary mechanisms can't uh, easily be relied upon. Now, Hamilton less famously returned to this theme five years later in his debates with Madison, where he was writing as Pacificus against Madison's Helvidius, and they're writing about the president's power or lack thereof to, to decide the nation's neutrality amidst the, um, the, 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 uh, the wars among England and France. And I won't quote as much there, but Hamilton stressed that that debate was an example 
of, uh, quote, the executive in certain cases to determine the condition of the nation. And he said, presidents will take action in these spheres that actually will affect the ways in which the legislature goes on to act in response. He has a line here I've always loved. He says, the president may create an antecedent state of things. The president can take action and sometimes must take action that is going to shape the terrain on which the legislature later legislates. Today we call it a first mover advantage. Um, but I think it's, it's important that Hamilton recognized this. Um, these are just a couple of quotes that remind us the presidents don't just have a constitutional duty to take care of the laws are faithfully executed. They swear an oath to, to take care to um, uh, to faithfully, sorry, to quote, to faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States, a subtle reminder that the office is not just the execution of laws, it entails more, and I think it entails those things that Hamilton was writing about. Now, if you don't take Hamilton's word from it, I think we need to put real stock in the lessons of history. And this begins very early on with the early Congresses writing statutes, for example, statutes on tariffs, um, with respect, again, to our relationship with England and France, well, they understood that England and France were taking actions that impaired our neutral commerce. And so they wrote statutes that allowed the president to use tariffs kind of like a light switch if they had them back then, right, to toggle between tariff levels with those countries. Depending on the president's um, conclusion, of his, the, the president's opinion or findings that these countries were or were not violating our neutral commerce, right? What is neutral commerce? It's not an easy line to draw. And Congress recognized that ultimately the president would have to be the one to draw it. And they vested him with powers in that. Constitutionally speaking, of course, we have lessons from history in Lincoln, Washington, and others. Now, of course, we've seen many more so-called emergency statutes passed in the intervening years. Um, and the growth of that body of legislation mirrors or tracks, I think, the growth of our administrative state through similar legislative delegations. Deborah pointed this out just a moment ago, that when we're talking about things like the non-delegation doctrine and so on, these are doctrines that come in just as much to domestic legislation and domestic regulation as much as they do emergency powers and so on. I think these are in many ways deeply intertwined doctrines. So in light of that, and, and we need to take, I think we need to take seriously the fact that Congress does shirk its duties that it does hand off powers too glibly. There's a great line in John Hart Ely's book, War and Responsibility, um, around, around, around the time of the Iraq War, the first Iraq War, where he made the point that Deborah made earlier that we shouldn't treat this just as the president claiming power that's not his. It's also a problem of, president, of Congress's giving away their powers. As, as uh, Hart Ely said, um, Congress seated the ground without a fight. In fact, the message of, that, of the book, the book he was writing then, was that the legislative surrender was a self-interested one. Accountability is pretty frightening stuff. Congress will so often give away its powers too quickly. Uh, and it's ultimately to the people, and to, I think to some extent to the courts, to keep that in line. But the challenge in all of this is that we need to be careful, however skeptical we are of overbroad delegations of legislative power, we need to be careful in drawing distinctions between glib delegations of legislative power and domestic and legislative, or sorry, domestic and foreign policy. But on the other hand, appropriate concessions of discretion to the president to deal with genuine emergencies. What's that then, a genuine emergency? And that's the crux of this entire debate. And so much of this, def this debate defies easy line drawing precisely because it comes down to terms like a genuine emergency. So even in the, the Brennan Center's reports and what we've heard discussed today in terms of proposals, so much of it turns on presidential judgment as to what the state of affairs are, what the facts are, whether there's a genuine emergency and so on. So much of this is inevitably going to wind up in the president's hands. 
that's unavoidable, and it's, it's significant. We so often talk about our Constitution being one that created a government for men who aren't angels. And that's right, that's true. We can't count on our government to be angelic. But in so many other places in the Federalist, in the Federalist Papers, Madison and Hamilton warn that actually our system presumes certain virtues. Madison stressed this, of course, with respect to Congress in Federalist 55, where he said, yeah, of course, there's a certain amount of depravity in, in mankind. But then he says, Republican government presupposes the existence of other qualities um, in a higher degree than in any other form. The Republican government necessarily relies on Republican virtues more so than any other form of government then, and I think today as well. Hamilton, focusing as always on executive power, makes the same points when he's writing about the Electoral College and the sorts of people presidents and candidates it would produce. He said, it's easy to chuckle at this line now, he said, um, there will be a constant probability of seeing the station, the presidency, filled by characters preeminent for ability and virtue. Right? Yeah, and I'll insert uh, laugh error. Um, but the fact is, Hamilton was writing that because he said it would be a credit to our Constitution, that our Constitution would be judged by the statesmen that it produced precisely because our system relied on the, the Constitution producing good administrations. Right? Even if Hamilton wasn't predicting, he was warning that we needed to look to these virtues precisely because so much of the work of government would rely upon it. And he made similar points in Federalist 22 when he's talking about uh, the, the themes that now come up in the Emoluments Clause, right? That Republican government is necessarily sensitive to outside influence or even corrupt domestic influence precisely because, um, thanks, precisely because um, in Republican government, our office holders are taken from the people themselves and so are susceptible to so many pressures that common people, like all of us, are so often susceptible to. So our system really depends on the presidency being filled with men who demonstrate Republican virtue. We might survive a period of time without that, right? It's true that our, our system can get along without angelic government, but not in the long run. I think in the long run, it requires more virtue, which means it requires the voters and all of us to depend, to, to demand more of that. Um, and we see in our system, just looking today, and so much of the things we've discussed already, the way it's baked into the system. So many of these legislative delegations of power to the president, both in regular regulatory policy and also in extraordinary emergency policy. Um, it presumes certain qualities of character and certain amounts of self-restraint and judgment by the president. And by the same token, the doctrines of judicial deference that will now be put to the test were built and built at a time of or premised upon expectations about what an ordinary administration looks like and how we expect it to work. Um, and I think we should demand that of our administration today, just as we demanded of every administration. The challenge is the courts go on to adjudicate these cases about the president's declaration. I don't think it's so much that they're going to get rid of doctrines wholesale. I think it's going to be the tough work of the court trying to recalibrate doctrines in light of recent developments and in light of the facts on the ground as they understand it, knowing that the courts are not well suited to understand or recognize the facts that are at the heart of these presidential determinations. So I just say in conclusion that the great irony today then is that our current president is so unconventional, indeed he, he gleefully defies convention, right? But he's now relying on the conventions that were built upon him. We all are relying upon those conventions. And it's that intersection of the unconventional president and the demands of conventional presidency that make this such a challenging um, debate. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much.
Thanks, Adam. Uh, and thanks to our other panelists. Uh, I'm going to open it up for audience questions in about 20 minutes or so, but for now we have a little bit of time to uh, discuss some of the issues that were raised in the opening statements. I want to make sure uh, everyone gets a chance to do that. Let me also put uh, uh, use moderator's privilege and put one of my own on the table for anyone to respond to. Uh, as Ilya Shapiro uh, mentioned at the outset, uh, the original Constitution is notably stingy when it comes to granting emergency powers to the president. Uh, most of whatever you might describe as an emergency power, most of them are in Article One, uh, power for uh, provide for calling forth the militia or suspending habeas corpus. Uh, and early on, you know, in the Washington administration, you have. Uh, you know, some delegation, Congress delegating the power to call forth the militia in certain circumstances, uh, insurrection involved and requests from the states or a federal judge. But uh, other than that, uh, the president's emergency powers are, are pretty limited. Uh, there's some discussion of his power to repel sudden attacks at the convention. And he also has this power in Article 2, Section 3 to convene Congress on, quote, extraordinary occasions, which might uh, include a national emergency. So my question is, uh, does he need more? What, and if he does, what are the circumstances under which we envision that these limited powers are, uh, to, for which these limited powers are inadequate, uh, a meteor hurtling towards the earth or, or something else? And to the extent that uh, emergency powers, uh, delegated emergency powers are useful, how much of it is, uh, could be classified in terms of necessary powers in the cases of threats that are really serious, and how much of it, uh, how much of the remainder are just things that are, are useful, like the ability to change requirements for federal contracting in a hurricane or something like that. So uh, to sum up, what, what emergency powers does the, what, what could we not do without in the hands of the president? What powers does, does he need, absolutely need to have delegated? Anyone? So I don't think I can give you a complete list but I think I can at least suggest general principles, which is, as we were discussing uh, earlier in the panel, it's desirable to constrain it to situations which A, really are sudden crises, and B, can't be handled through the ordinary legislative process. Uh, and uh, to the extent that it's necessary to handle those types of situations, there should be time limits on it, uh, which both will enable it, uh, us to uh, separate out the real emergencies from fake ones and also limit the threat that is posed. I would add that modern conditions actually make it easier to uh, get legislative authorization for situations where there is broad agreement that there is a real emergency. That provision for calling in a special session of the legislature in the 18th century, if they weren't already in session, it might take weeks for all of them to get back to Washington. Today, they can get back probably within less than 24 hours. Uh, so there's actually less need for uh, the 
president to have a long period of time to act before Congress can get in on the action uh, than there was in the 18th century. Uh, so I think with those principles in mind, we could then talk about particular cases and there can certainly be disagreement about uh, borderline situations, which is may not be just the same thing as situations at the border, but maybe there will even be borderline situations at the border as well. Uh, what I think we should be able to agree on, however, is sort of the general principles that apply and that can exclude uh, a large number of possible exercise of power, even though there will always be uh, some room for disagreement at the margin. Well, does Deborah have someone? Sure. Um, so thanks. Um, I, too, don't deny for a moment that there may be emergencies that arise um, in which the president needs to be able to exercise powers that aren't currently on the books. The one that comes to mind um, most frequently is the... Um, a problem of, a, of, of an infectious disease outbreak, um, whether as a result of um, natural emerging infectious diseases or biological attack. Um, so th there are no questions, no question emergencies arise. I want to caution, though, about two things. One is, um, as a matter of good policy, right, and there is a just pile of organization theory that supports this and makes it clear, and in fact, across the government, um, particularly in the Department of Homeland Security, um, as we uh, anticipate grappling with natural disasters, terrorist strikes, and so forth, the best handling of emergencies come from whatever the source of the emergency is, uh, a set of... Um, a set of responses that have been planned at some level, right? So whatever the underlying, whether it's a hurricane or a terrorist attack or so forth, you know, our government exists with um, vast uh, apparatuses so you don't have to the moment something bad happens because something bad will always happen. Um, just all of a sudden try to reinvent the wheel, right? We've invested a great deal of money and probably should invest more in those systems. And that's the first line of defense for emergencies. It's the kind that both because we know emergencies happen and because we handle them better when we've planned a little bit for that possibility, um, uh, they're dealt with in the ordinary, to the extent possible in the ordinary course. The uh, asteroid impact is a great example of this, right? We could devote this tiny fraction of money of the federal budget to actually mapping um, the asteroids in our solar system. Tiny, tiny amounts of money in the scope of the federal budget, but we haven't quite gotten around to it because, you know, later. Um, so, uh, so so, part of it is the incentives that, the, that, that democracy... Um, has and, and operates on. The fix that I favor for the national emergency, one of the fixes that I particularly favor for this, this National Emergency Act, in addition to many of the things that have already been said, including just eliminating some of the underlying statutory authorities altogether, I think obviously, um, uh, is to require some sort of objective, fact-based, record um, on the record determination or finding by the president or more importantly, probably the relevant um, administration authority, whether it's the Department of Defense or the Department of Homeland Security, whoever it is on the front line of whatever the emergency is, to actually support through factual findings, uh, the president's declaration of emergency. In other words, rather than having a definitional check on the president's power, you can declare an emergency if one of the following five things happen. It's a process check 
on the president's power. It actually, I think, allows for the president more, uh, allows the president more flexibility rather than less, but it solves the problem of having a president that does not act in good faith or on the basis of facts. Um, we've seen that kind of process check work repeatedly in the last couple of years in the lower courts in the ordinary administrative context as the lower courts have rejected, for example, the president's initial travel bans, the initial attempt to um, include citizenship on the census, the initial attempt to withdraw the uh, deferred action against childhood arrivals provision, which the lower courts have struck down on Administrative Procedure Act grounds, right? You, you, you rendered this policy, you, you adopted this policy without actually reasoned decision-making or the consultation of facts. Um, that's a really powerful check and has proven to be one uh, presidency in and presidency out. I can't imagine why it doesn't exist in this particular context. Adam. And I just say in response to, to this initial question, first of all, on the nature of the president's emergency powers in the Constitution, um, I think um, my view of it is that there's a lot in that initial vesting of executive power that goes beyond just the simple enumeration of powers. But also, I don't think it's a coincidence that the first Congress and the early Congresses delegated power along these lines to presidents. Right? I don't think it's a coincidence that the first Congresses, the ones most familiar with the failure of the Articles of Confederation um, and, and the needs of, of the initial government, they, they created the first departments, they created the first taxes and other laws, and they also recognized that they needed to delegate certain amount of discretion to the president to deal with contingencies. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think our constitutional system has a gravitational pull in that direction. Now, of course, it's hard to define in advance what is an emergency. I've, I've been forever working on a Law Review article in the financial regulation context about systemic risk, right, and, and trying to create a regulatory structure in advance for dealing with systemic financial harm and I'm very skeptical there that you can write these things in advance so that you can sort of define in advance what the emergencies are. After all, if we could define in advance, if we could define in advance so many emergencies, then they wouldn't be emergencies, right? We would have seen them coming. Um, and that's why I think it's so important to leave, and it's, we inevitably will leave discretion in the hands of the president. I'm always wary of Congress being sort of interposing itself after the, the emergency has started. Right, it, I agree, we, we need to work as hard as we can in advance to realistically define policy in advance. I think Congress needs to do a better job and more creative job of that, recognizing its own limits. Right? We need to have some epistemic, am I saying this right, epistemic modesty, is that right? And trying to predict and legislate in advance emergencies, but we need to be creative on these things. What worries me is when Congress relieves itself of that obligation by saying, well, we'll just define the rules for how we're gonna serve as ombudsmen of the emergency after the emergency happens. No, I want Congress to stay primarily in its lane and define as much substantive policy as it can up front, and then concede, um, real, concede you know, to the reality that when the president, when, when an emergency does arise, the president ultimately is going to be in the driver's seat on these things, and the presidents are going to have, you know, no short, no shortage of discretion in deciding what an emergency is, and Congress is going to have to do the hard work of legislating in advance and then legislating after the fact. Um, but this idea that we're going to set procedural checks like congressional vetoes, that just, I think, gets the system on its head. I think we need to separate as much as possible legislation from execution. And things like the legislative veto and so on were just Congress trying to get out of the business of legislation and into the business of execution. That's a constitutional mistake and a dangerous one. What role, uh, if any, do you, any of you, see the uh, uh, Trump's public statements playing in uh, uh, 
litigation, assuming we get to, uh, you know, Deborah mentioned the ripeness problem, but when we actually get down to it, uh, President Trump has made a, he's sort of, I think it was Jack Goldsmith who who called him guileless in a way, Uh, was a nice way of putting it. He, he, He makes public statements uh, that are not designed to help him in future litigation. Uh, in this case, uh, you know, he, he said in January that uh, my threshold for declaring a national emergency will be if I can't make a deal with people that are unreasonable. Uh, he said when he was actually getting ready to sign the paperwork on the emergency proclamation, uh, I didn't need to do this. I'd just rather do it much faster. Uh, what role do you all see uh, those kind of statements, you know, we, at least in the lower courts with the travel ban uh, litigation, uh, we've seen, uh, you know, more judicial notice of uh, these foot and mouth sort of statements. Uh, do you expect, or would you predict uh, we'll see more of that? And uh, is that as it should be? Yeah, I, I think it's inevitable these things will be brought into the litigation, and rightly so. It's one of the reasons why I think the, the administration shouldn't be so confident that it'll get the same amount of deference in these cases that it got in Trump versus Hawaii, which was mentioned earlier, right? There, at least, there was some semblance of a, a fairly cre- clean record. The court could define the record um, looking just at the official actions and documentation of the, of the executive branch. But having the president announce these things in the run-up, um, you know, the, the, the month and a half lead time of the debate on whether there would be an emergency declaration was so self-defeating. And then to say, to make the comment that, that, that you just quoted at the signing, I think it's going to be impossible for the court to ignore those things. And maybe that's, it's, it's good, right, that you get the courts actually second-guessing the president's view of the facts when the president himself is second-guessing the view of the facts, right, um, and not going further and trying to second-guess um, you know, the ordinary course of factual findings of a normal administration in something that looks more like a genuine emergency? Yeah. So I think there's several ways that this can go. My initial instinct about this was that it would play a lesser role here than the travel ban case, because in the travel ban situation, there was, and it still is, outside the immigration context, at least an extensive body of law which says that if you have a pretextual motive, which is itself unconstitutional, like racial, ethnic, or in this case, religious discrimination, that might make an action unconstitutional, even if it was permissible for some other motive. Here, uh, there isn't that kind of body of law dealing with motivation. Uh, Therefore, you might say it should play a lesser role. I think if this case is decided correctly, uh, there would be no need to go into his motivations and statements, because you could just say, what matters is, is this actually an emergency, whether or not he thinks it is, whether or not he's sincere. Uh, and if it's not an emergency, which it's not, then it should be, the declaration should be struck down. However, if a, some sort of doctrine of deference kicks in, uh, then two things might happen. One is courts might realize, though, so far in the past they genuinely haven't, that deference is not appropriate in a situation where the decision was not actually based on any kind of specialized expertise, but was based on other kinds of motives, whereas Deborah said it's, it's a pretextual uh, case. Uh, I, I, although I think this is a powerful consideration, courts in general have not been very willing to give it a lot of 
uh, uh, wait at least not formally. But even if courts aren't going to openly say this matters, whether it's pretextual or not, I think the fact that it looks very pretextual and probably is pretextual may influence judges in a more informal way in that it may, other things equal, incline some judges against the administration's arguments. If a judge has a very strong view on the validity of the arguments one way or another, then this kind of thing probably won't make a difference. But if the judge is otherwise on defense, I think it is possible the judge uh, might be pushed over the line into ruling against the administration uh, because of this, even if when the judge writes the opinion, what is said in the opinion doesn't specifically cite this issue, uh, I think it does affect the atmosphere in which the litigation is conducted. Uh, that uh, I was going to say everybody knows, not everybody knows, but most people know that this is probably pretextual uh, and that can't but uh, at least at the margin affect how people perceive it, including the way at least some judges would perceive it. So um, the question about how other institutions should respond to an abnormal uh, presidency, right, or indeed abnormal institutional behavior of any kind is, I think, often a really difficult one, right? Um, if the president does something extraordinary in not a good way, right, do the courts or the FBI or Congress respond to that extraordinary problem by themselves behaving in extraordinary ways? That is, by changing their own um, institutional norms and habits uh, that have grown up over sometimes a long time for often good reasons, right? And, and, and the reason that's a complicated question is because you worry then abnormalcy in one institution has a cascade effect across all institutions. Um, and I think sometimes that can be a really difficult problem, right? How should the courts react to this um, extraordinarily unusual presidency? Um, on this particular question, I actually think it's not that hard, um, in part because, as I've argued in plenty of law review articles, right, I don't think uh, the president should be entitled to deference on questions, uh, even in the sort of immigration national security realm, unless... Uh, there is a demonstration that it is backed up by the expertise that is the justification for judicial deference in the first place. And here is a great example of where there's no indication that there is any um, expert internal, you know, inside the executive branch other than the president um, who thinks that who thinks that there's an emergency going on. Um, so, so in this particular case, it seems to me actually pretty straightforward for the courts to respond to this by saying. Um, for example, in interpreting the underlying statute, the military construction statute. Look, this statute is, uses the word requires uh, the use of the armed forces and the use of the armed forces are necessary. It doesn't say if the president determines the armed forces are required and if the president determines it's necessary. There are plenty of statutes that are written like that to delegate to the president some real subjective measure of discretion. This particular one is not written in those subjective terms. It's written very objective terms suggesting that it's possible to have an external measure of whether in fact this is required or necessary. Um, so I think this is actually um, a, an easy case for that. Uh, but going forward, I think the, 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 the biggest concern I have is the movement away 
in this presidency, but even leading up in sort of the discourse leading up to this presidency, the movement away from sort of fact-based governance. Um, and it's a movement that on the one hand seems like a movement away from everything that's grown up in administrative law over the last 60, 70 years, um, but in other respects seems really troublingly like a movement away from the enlightenment over um, centuries. Um, and. It, to me, having institutions respond and push back against that um, sort of instinct and that phenomenon is not institutions behaving strangely, it's institutions behaving um, normally. If I could just make one other related point to all this and talking about deference. Last week, I was lucky to be here for an event that Ilya organized um, with the Federal Society on Chevron deference. Between that event and this event, I feel like I'm becoming the Cato Institute's sort of token deferrer. Um, but my message there, kind of like my message here, is that you know there's a lot of danger in deference, but there might be even more danger in the lack of deference. And our understandings of, the, of Congress and the courts have really been shaped by the actions of this administration, the previous one, and the previous one before that, um, with, with assertions of, of executive power, both in domestic policy and in foreign policy. And that's good. It's good that, that those experiences have taught us a lot about, about Congress and the courts. But I think we shouldn't overlearn the lesson. I think we also should recognize that those, these three administrations have taught us a lot about the presidency, right? And that, that we ought to focus what we learn here, not just on changing the courts in Congress, but changing how we think about uh, what the presidency is. All right, we have a little bit of time for questions. Uh, I'll ask that you defer to me uh, in picking the, the, the questioners. And uh, going to insist, as I always do, that they actually be questions. Uh, raise your hand, wait for the mic. Uh, state your affiliation if you think it matters, and uh, please uh, don't filibuster. Uh, make it short and uh, make sure that what you have to say actually ends with a question mark. <laughs> uh, this fellow over here. <coughs> Sorry. I should probably stand up so I can see everyone. So my question is going to be in the realm of how this might play out in the, before the Supreme Court. Um, do you think that the NEA gives the Trump administration reason to argue before the court that they're acting with congressional approval or congressional authorization? Uh, definitely, uh, especially considering that since, like, Youngstown Sheet, the court has used Congress's actions and whether or not they're with the presidency or, or against the presidency to determine the breadth of emergency action. Um, so, great. Um, this is actually the second time in two weeks I've been able to talk about the Youngstown Steel case in Washington, D.C. Um, my students are, my constitutional law students are thrilled. Um, so, right, the case you're talking about, the famous steel seizure case, Korean War, President um, Truman says there's an emergency. It looks like there's going to be a labor strike in the steel mills. There's a war going on in Korea. We need steel for every part of the war effort that we're undertaking. I am now... Um, in the face of a pending labor strike, going to seize and operate the privately owned steel mills for myself. Supreme Court says, can't do that. Um, and in particular, Justice Jackson, in, in a controlling now concurring opinion that the Supreme Court continues to decide um, in, in wide majorities uh, today, um, says, 
Let me tell you how to think about presidential power. Presidential power is not fixed, but fluctuates. It waxes and wanes, depending on what Congress has said. Uh, when Congress has delegated the president the authority to do something, the president's power is, maxim is at its maximum. When Congress has said, no, thou shalt not do it, right? The president's power is at its lowest ebb. And if it's not clear what Congress has said, we're in a twilight zone, and this all depends on contemporary imponderables, uh, which are, you know, imponderable. Um, so. Um, the, uh, the, the argument here plays out in the following way, right? The president says this is a manifest delegation of power from Congress to the president. It's a category one case. That is, this is where Congress has said, <coughs> not anything confusing, simply go forth and do this. The only argument on the other side, right, um, is that this is category three or maybe category two, right? That Congress made clear its view uh, before the president declared an emergency that we don't want to spend $8 billion to construct a wall on the southern border, right? And that's, on the one hand, a important argument. On the other hand, not a slam dunk, because in fact, Congress, which it could have done when it ultimately passed the um, uh, passed the legislation after the end of the, that ended the government shutdown could have included a provision in that legislation that said, and the president cannot spend any already appropriated funds for what or otherwise authorized or obligated funds for whatever purpose that, uh, that is authorized for whatever purpose on constructing a wall in the southern border. In other words, Congress could have enacted at that point, right, um, a thou shalt not prohibition, and it didn't. Instead, the closest Congress has come to know is in the Senate failing to bring to the floor the president's budget that included the $8 billion for a wall. That's not exactly the kind of crystal clear no that one would hope for in a category three case. So now we're back in the twilight zone. Now this is what gives me hope. If this actually came to the court, right? Here is where, once again, it matters what the contemporary imponderables are. And unlike in the administrative law context or any others, here the court has demonstrated a proclivity and indeed interest in simply inquiring, is there an actual emergency on, right? Is this war emergency that the president, President Truman or whichever, right, is, is invoking, an actual one? And the court has been played uh, there before Korematsu, the most infamous uh, example maybe. Um, Here's an example in which the court might conclude, you know, at worst, this is a category two case. Um, I still don't know, right, where that necessarily gets you other than back to my statutory interpretation. So what, what does this mean? Well, I'm not sure what it means with respect to a declaration of emergency, but maybe it means we should read this underlying statute more narrowly. That is the military construction statute more narrowly. So I think the case probably could be resolved without much reference to Youngstown framework just by asking A, is an emergency? B, even if it is, uh, is he using section 2808, the military construction statute, the right way? However, there is this interesting similarity between the steel seizure case and the current one, uh, which is that in the steel seizure case, Congress had set up the Taft-Hartley Act, which created a mechanism for the president to uh, order people back to work in the steel industry if there was a strike, uh, but the mechanism that the Taft-Hartley Act set up was one that President Truman didn't like, because it essentially involved breaking a strike by the union. It was sort of a pro-management way of ending the strike. Uh, but the Taft-Hartley Act did not specifically say, you can't just seize the steel mills and tell them to go to back to work on labor's terms rather than management's terms. Yet, nonetheless, the Supreme Court invalidated what Truman did in part because they said, 
if there is the Taft Hartley Act, then that suggests that you can't just go around and do the same thing your own way, even if uh, uh, you know it doesn't specifically ban what you did. Similarly, here. Uh, Congress has repeatedly not given Trump the amount of money that he would like for border wall construction and the like, uh, and we have the resolution of disapproval. So even though what he's done is not specifically forbidden in so many words, uh, the pattern of events does have a similarity uh, to what happened in the steel seizure case, and that should count against Trump if we if the court does decide that you know we have to get into this framework. I don't think they necessarily need to do so. I think often the framework raises more questions than it answers, and this may be one of those times. But if they do get into it, uh, then. Uh, the steel seizure case does suggest that there doesn't have to be an explicit congressional ban for the court to rule that it's in category three, namely that you're going against the will of Congress, uh, that if that's what happened in the steel seizure case, uh, and there's some dispute about exactly whether that was what it was or not, but if that is what happened in the steel seizure case, maybe uh, that's what's true here as well. White shirt. <laughs> Both have white shirts. <laughs> uh, Jim Duhome, no affiliation. A couple of quick questions for Ilya. Uh, in terms of uh, an urgent crisis being required under the statute, uh, isn't that belied by the fact that in both text and practice, there have been long-term declarations of emergency, number one. And number two, does the intelligible standard requirement for emergency or a, a generally stated or a broadly stated power apply when Congress has an override, uh, has reserved the power to override presidential action? Yeah, so two interesting questions. On the first one, as I mentioned in my initial presentation, uh, it is indeed a weakness of the statute that the emergencies can go on uh, essentially forever, potentially. However, to the extent that they can, that makes it all the more important that there be constraints on the initial declaration of emergency. So even if once it's declared, it can go on for a long time, uh, it has to be a sudden crisis to, an, an, uh, to authorize declaration in the first place. Uh, so I don't think there's any inconsistency there. There can be different standards for uh, declaring it in the first place versus continuing it later. With respect to the override, the way the override works now, it's no different from the fact that anything the president does, uh, unless it's an inherent presidential power, can potentially be overridden by a new congressional statute, uh, so long as either the president doesn't veto it uh, or Congress overrides the veto. Uh, so in the post-Chada world, there really isn't any more of an override for this than there is for any other exercise of presidential power, because Congress can always pass a new law. Uh, and uh, if the president doesn't veto it, it can always potentially constrain him. So uh, matters might be different if we had a law that uh, had the framework that Senator Lee and others advocate where it automatically ends within 30 days and the like. Uh, do even then, I think the word emergency has a plain meaning that should be respected. Uh, but in the current statute where there's really no more of an override than there is for anything else, uh, I don't think the override provision should carry a lot of weight. Yeah. 
I'm inclined to think that the Supreme Court would hold that the uh, emergency was properly invoked within the discretion granted by the net, the Emergency Act. But could you speak about on the underlying statute, if that's properly invoked, the military construction, 10 U.S.C. 2808, could the court then look at cases, if any, in the past where that was invoked, the facts of those where it was invoked, and compare those facts in some way to what the facts are in this case, and somehow distinguish it on that and say, the Emergency Act is properly invoked, the President used it correctly, we're not going to look behind his reasoning, but this type of construction for this wall is not within the contemplation of the National um, Emergency Act uh, reliance on the Construction Act. Thank you. That's exactly what I think is the most likely grounds for invalidating, if we ever get there, um, the proposed use of the National Emergency Act here, right? So the court could simply say, I'm just not going to opine on the legality of the invocation of the National Emergency Act as such. What I'm going to say is I'm reading Section 2808. First, we would need the Secretary of Defense to actually authorize it. I don't know if you could do that through an acting Secretary of Defense, for example, but if you had an actual Secretary of Defense, it might be really interesting. Um, the you know military construction is defined under the statute as any construction carried out with respect to a military installation. A military installation is a base camp, post station, yard center, or other activity under the jurisdiction of the Secretary of a military department. Right? Try using this statute to build something on private owned land, right? So that's one of the examples of the problems that arise when you try to actually apply this statute in a way one might contemplate the administration was thinking of applying it. Um, If I were a court, (laughs) right, the smallest ruling I could possibly make would be to say, all right, let's not go down the existential road of, I don't think there's actually an emergency here. Let me just exercise, engage in a very... um, ordinary exercise of statutory interpretation and conclude 2808 does not give the president the power to, say, construct a wall on private property under these circumstances. Now, there's one caveat to that, right? One is, as with all statutory interpretation, there'll be arguments on the other side, right? And one of the important arguments on the other side would be to the extent the statute is unclear or unclear in this particular application, or if they really are just going to use this particular money to build parts of a wall that actually do fit within the statute, right? The president always has uh, in his or her back pocket the argument that the court should defer to the president on the meaning of this particular, these particular statutory terms like requirement and necessary uh, and so forth. So it's even if one just focuses on 2808, it's going to be hard to avoid deference arguments altogether. The president's lawyers would be silly to, to ignore those arguments. Uh, but boy, if, if I were a court, um, it, it would seem to me the, the, the easiest way of, of addressing the issue. The previous uses of that statute, I'm pretty sure, are uh, Bush the Elder and Bush the Younger, uh, the first uh, right after the, the Gulf War, or I think right when Operation Desert Shield is underway. And the second, this 2808 was invoked uh, after 9-11. And every project, I think there were 18 different projects that had, uh, in total, that had money diverted to them. And all of them, with the exception of one, were for military facilities abroad. You know, in in that respect, I think that, sir, some of the most analogous cases that the court will be looking at, the litigants will be talking about, are domestic cases like FDA versus Brown and Williamson. 
and Utility Air Regulatory Group versus EPA, we had the FDA and the EPA sort of suddenly discovering in longstanding statutes really unprecedented innovative new uses. And the court in both those cases was very skeptical. And, you know, that's where you see the line of, you know, Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes. Um, I think that's the tenor that this court case might take where the court says, this, these statutes aren't new. They've been used before. We know what they're re- we can see what they're really made for and what they're not made for. And something of this magnitude really doesn't fit within the small scope of what the Congress had in mind. Yeah. I think here there might actually be uh, what we were talking about with the Youngstown Category 3 where Congress has explicitly forbidden something because the military is in fact forbidden to engage in most types of domestic law enforcement. And the two rationales that the administration has put forward uh, here are A, immigration enforcement, B, drug enforcement, both domestic law enforcement. And so not only does this this thing not necessitate the the use of the military, but if the military is used, then it itself could be a violation of law. And therefore, uh, you know, there's a, a pretty strong case as opposed to building military facilities for the Gulf War or for uh, post 9-11 operations where it pretty is the, pretty clearly is the case that domestic law enforcement was not what they were doing there. I think we have time for one more. Gentleman in the back there. Thank you. Uh, Max Trujillo from MJT Policy. Um, you mentioned the, the impact of the president's statements in, in the future judicial cases that may be taking place. I wanted to ask you, what, are, what do you think his statements impact future legislation? And I'm talking about pre-this emergency declaration. There was talk that, he, that the president wanted to use the funds from natural disasters to pay for the wall. And, but he in particular thought, or the president made the statement that maybe he can take it from just Puerto Rico and California leaving that in the same legislation, there was money for Texas and Florida. So there was a, an issue of coincidence that they were from one particular party or another. I'm thinking in terms of the new emergency that's taking place in the middle of the country with the floods. Do you think there will be special language to prevent the president from having so much discretion to use the funds for a particular set of states as opposed to other set of states? Thank you. So um, there are a lot of things to, I guess, let me take that in maybe two different contexts. Um, I, I'm familiar with this, I'm generally familiar with the statements of the president you mentioned. Um, as a general matter, as a matter of existing statute, the Anti-Deficiency Act, right, the president cannot use money that's been appropriated for one thing that's been appropriated for something else, right? And there are, in fact, criminal penalties that attach to doing that. Um, So that's part of why I anticipate, it's part of why I anticipate it's taking so long for the administration to tell Congress where exactly it anticipates getting the money for the first half of the funds that it, um, the uh, non-emergency act half of the funds that it's um, identified or or purported to identify in its initial declaration. Um, The more closely I looked at the initial declaration and fast statement that accompanied, the more I came to the conclusion this has actually no intended actual policy effect. This is intended to have uh, reopen the government with some um, political cover 
effect primarily. So I'm not hugely worried about that now, but it would depend on the particular language of the statute that uh, has appropriated the emergency funds. Um, with respect to the broader part of your question about that, that we talked about earlier with respect to how much the president's words matter um, in court, a colleague of mine wrote a, a terrific article last year um, about presidential speech and what effect it has, if any. What do the courts make of this? Not just with respect to this president, but what kind of evidentiary value in any context, right, do the president's words have? Um, and the, the short answer was, boy, the courts haven't addressed this in any systematic way. Unsurprisingly, I don't know that we've had a president like this before. No, I, I know we have not had a president like this before. Um, so we're beginning to see that. But one of, one of the suggestions was that when the president's words reflect some considered judgment, right, like are part of a finding required by statutes, it's that they're reflecting an administrative determination that the, the broader executive branch has made, or when they events, evince some impermissible or unconstitutional motive, right, as one might have imagined the president's words in the travel ban case did, as one might imagine, depending on what else the president says about Puerto Rico emergency funds, one might imagine might be apparent there, um, then it's permissible and indeed necessary for the courts to take account of the president's words as evidence of the president's motive, permissible or otherwise. Thank you all for a uh, enlightening discussion. Uh, you can join us upstairs in the Winter Garden for lunch uh, on the first floor. Thank you. Thank you.